With winds topping 70 miles an hour, this storm destroyed thousands of acres of pecans, cotton, and timber, leveling homes, storefronts, and structures, literally upending lives and livelihoods. When the dust settled, I traveled down to southwest Georgia to talk with local farmers and support the state's recovery efforts. I remember many conversations while I was there. Most of them went roughly the same way. These families were facing the destruction of their livelihoods, with bills piling up and federal assistance far away. I would ask how they would move forward. Would they be able to continue feeding, clothing, and producing for our state and the world? Nearly every person said they would clear the fields, repair what they could, and start planning. As we begin a new year, a new legislative session, there are some who want to look to the past, assign blame, settle old scores, and relive and relitigate 2020. Today, I think we should take the advice of those wise farmers. Let's clear the fields and start planning. Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me for today's show is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? I, I am planting my fields. I am uh, contemplating the future and refusing to look uh, into the past uh, ever again. So that, that that's where I am, inspired by our Governor Brian Kemp. Yes, that is the advice of Governor Kemp. And, and listeners, what you heard was a condensed clip of Governor Kemp in the intro there. He is ready to clear the fields of 2020 and start fresh. Uh, but that was a clip from his State of the State, which is what we're mostly going to talk about today. And this was a State of the State where he wanted to give the final word on 2020 before he moves on, before he doesn't allow anybody to settle old scores or anything like that. He wanted to defend some of the most pivotal decisions that he made amidst a global pandemic an economic crisis, and all of the other uh, challenges facing our state in the last year. Kemp in this speech also celebrated the impact his decisions on COVID have had on the state's economy. And interestingly, we're going to talk about this, he gave a strong condemnation of the murder of Ahmad Arbery and a pledge to make significant changes to the state's citizen's arrest statute. We're going to talk about those things that he talked about in the speech. We're also going to talk about the things he didn't mention, which are some of the most like what are likely to be the most contentious issues in the state legislature this year, including a push within his own party to limit access to voting. That's going to be most of our show for today. Then we're going to cover some other news and notes here as we uh, wrap up the first week of of the legislative session, Luke. And I, I just want to start with your reaction to this speech, reaction to the tone that Governor Kemp took in his annual message on the state of our state. I think his speech was interesting for a lot of reasons. The The first reason really being that what we just talked about is the fact that he sort of, uh, you know, lays out this, this he plants his flag saying, let's stop talking about 2020. And, and now for the next hour, I'm going to talk to you about 2020, <laughs> why it was so great. But never again will we talk about 2020 after this speech, um, which, you know, uh, 2020 was terrible. So I, I don't blame Brian Kemp for not wanting to talk about it anymore because I surely don't. Um, but I do find it pretty funny that like he, you know, like, like you said, that was very early on in his speech that he, uh, you know, planted that flag. And for the most part, I really feel like this speech was a look back, which is odd because despite the, you know, the state of the state speech, very similar to the state of the union 
uh, in, in its sense that it is kind of a report on, like, how's Georgia doing? But typically, both the State of the Union and Georgian State of the States are, are far more of the where Georgia should go, where the United States should go, rather than where we are. And I feel like Kemp really did do a whole lot more defending of the things he had done rather than a, you know, short, this is what 2020 was like, these are the decisions we made, this is how it's turned out, and here's where we're going to go from there. Um, What I really feel from this speech is there is no vision forward on a large scale there's lots of little things and lots of honestly like good things that can't sound you know sounds like he wants to do but as far as the like how is georgia going to handle the once in a lifetime covid19 pandemic brian kemp really doesn't have anything new to offer us uh, in this speech yeah i think he is eager to return to a more normal life and all of us agree with him we're all eager to return to a more normal life But I think the thesis of this speech for him is that normal life in Georgia was perfectly fine before the pandemic hit. And once we get past vaccines, once we get past quarantine, normal life is going to return and and there were really no other significant problems to solve. We're just going to be back to business as usual. And I think it's an interesting message to take in the lead up to what I think is going to be a significant challenge from Stacey Abrams in in the 2022 governor's race, given the ascendance of the Democratic Party electorally that we've seen, you know, with taking the two Senate runoff races with Biden winning the state in November, I would have expected something larger. um, But I think he wants, wants to it and believes that his record is good enough to win him reelection. Once we get past I think, in his view, what is essentially a, a pretty big speed bump in COVID-19. Yeah, and I feel like we've talked about a lot of things <laughs> in the past couple of weeks. And one thing I don't think we have talked about in, in as much detail as we were uh, back at the beginning of last year was just like what Brian Kemp's approach to the COVID-19 pandemic has been i feel i feel like when we talk about this kyle you do a much better job of explaining it than i do but so you know i, th- I think it would be good to lay out here both using you know this speech because kemp's approach in general like what has it been what has kemp's approach been to you know compared to like california or new york or some of the other states that are in the news a lot more often than than georgia is there's a key phrase that i think encapsulates governor kemp's entire approach to covid and that is balancing the impact on co- the impact of covid on lives and livelihoods and he i think more than any other governor in the country has taken a stand on balancing the health impacts of covid with the reality that if you sort of go all out to stop the spread of the virus that has economic consequences for people in our state that is not acceptable and here, actually, I think we should give the mic to, to Governor Kemp and let him give the full version of this defense and give you a sense of who on behalf of he, he is giving this defense for. I faced just a little criticism from all sides when we chose to safely and methodically reopen the state. For news cycle after news cycle, it seemed like the only voices given a megaphone were from those who could work from home long term and those who had the resources to shelter in place for months on end. But the voices I heard 
were the voices of men and women from Bainbridge to Bolingbrook to Baldwin, who had spent years building their business, creating jobs, sowing a harvest they hoped to one day reap for themselves and their families, literally days away from losing it all. While some disagreed with me, I know our decision to work with Dr. Toomey and her team to give these people a fighting chance, a glimmer of hope, meant everything to them. Salon, barber shop, restaurant owners, and so many more who sacrificed time and resources to implement new COVID-safe protocols in their stores when we reopened. These new regulations upended their daily operations, but kept many from closing stores, laying off workers, and losing businesses that sometimes had been families and communities for generations. Hundreds of thousands of waiters and waitresses, contractors, hospitality and tourism workers, and farmers. The pandemic came for them as well. This virus took something precious away from each one of them. My message to these great Georgians has been the same every day since we announced our measured reopening. Your state hears you, your governor hears you, and we have your back. Luke, I now find myself with more complicated feelings about that defense of Governor Kemp's approach. I don't think what I don't think that the current concerns that he has that have animated this approach are insignificant. And I don't think he's wrong to say that the economic impact on people who would have lost their businesses and on people who would lose their jobs is is meaningful and it, it's terrible. But we have over 650,000 confirmed cases of COVID in this state. Over 11,000 people have died from COVID in this state. And I also can't accept that the economic argument here is enough to just wave away the health impact. Like the place that we are in is understandable, but it's still not acceptable. Well, there there's one thing I think that Brian Kemp deserves a lot of credit for as governor compared to honestly almost every other governor. And that is the consistency of his message about what he prioritizes. When he says lives and livelihoods, it's pretty clear that the livelihoods element is the one that's more important to him, and especially the livelihoods of business owners. Because while he does pay lip service to the workers of businesses, he has, at least to my knowledge, not really pursued anything that would actually protect workers' livelihoods, workers' lives. He still refuses to issue a mask mandate, despite the fact that only twelve other state, uh, only eleven other states, don't have that right now. Uh, from the last time I looked it up, um, he still is pushing for us to extend the liability protection for businesses that practically make it impossible for a worker to sue their employer during a pandemic where they really can't say no to a job if they have a job if that business owner is not doing what they should be doing to ensure that they will not get sick from COVID-19. This speech is nice. Kemp is expressing that he cares about people, but he doesn't show it in his legislative action as much as he shows that he cares about businesses. And I know Mitt Romney said that corporations are people, my friends, but corporate death is not nearly as tragic as human lives and human death. And I think the thing that I want to make sure we do here, though, is I think we should focus in on the fact that Kemp has been consistent here. 
he's been consistent in saying that this is what he cares more about, that he is focused on in you know protecting the Georgian economy. And on that front, he has done very well. It's just a question of what has the cost of that been, and is that cost acceptable? And last question, most importantly, looking at 2022 and how he governs for the next two years, and if Georgians like that or not, is, is this the moral decision we want our leaders making? Because Kemp has made it very clear that this is the decision that he made, and he likes it, and he's going to continue, continue saying that the state does not really have a real role in protecting workers. That's their individual responsibility. If you don't like a job, you shouldn't take it if you think they're not doing COVID right. If you can't afford PPE, well, you should have gone to college or gotten a better job and gotten to a place that you could afford it because that's not the state's job. The state's job is to protect the economy. And he's made it very clear about that, and he's been remarkably consistent on it in a way that I think few other governors have been. And I think for that, <laughs> he deserves some credit. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the the, the true cost here is that Yes, even in in his nod to workers, he has taken steps that will protect the income of workers and the income of businesses um, and the owners of those businesses. That in no way protects their lives if they contract COVID at work. And so I think that in some ways, you know, requires us to kind of zoom out on this a little bit and, and look at more broadly who is accountable for the position that we are in, because in some ways, the true failure here is the failure on the part of the federal government and the Trump administration by forcing workers and forcing businesses to make the decision that the only way they were going to remain whole economically is to put their health at risk by going into their place of work in person and risking catching and spreading COVID-19. And they were put in that place by the decisions made at the federal level, not to fund, not to invest in a full lockdown that would have given us time to stop the spread of the virus and come up with the tools that we needed to keep spread from happening and, and to stamp it out when it does happen while we waited on a vaccine. And so in some ways, that's, you know, I, I have some sympathy here for Governor Kemp because in some ways I feel like he's sort of a middle manager on this crisis. And yet I can't let go of the fact that we did not use every tool at our disposal at the state level or at the federal level. And so the sort of like victory lap that's taken here in this speech does frustrate me on the level that no one should come away from this speech or this experience that we've been in for the last 11 months and say that any of this was acceptable, that any of this turned out okay. This was still a total abject failure of our country's ability to respond to COVID-19. Yeah. And, and the thing I want to be clear on too, because I, I think really drilling down into where I'm frustrated with camp here is going to be really important towards what we see for the next two years is that like, if I was going to give the governors of America a ranking on protective, you know, protecting lives, during the COVID-19 pandemic, pretty much everyone would get an F, probably. Um, I, I'm I'm pretty sure that almost everyone would. And, and you know, we're not grading on a curve here. <laughs> so, you know, everyone gets a really bad grade. Um, the thing that I think Kemp frustrates me the most about Kemp is everything you said, Kyle, is 100% true. 100% true. Donald Trump, the federal government, Congress, 
are far more to blame than Kent because Georgia has a balanced budget amendment. We could not just create money to do a lot of the things besides the mask mandate that I mentioned that I thought we should do to help workers. And that I want to be fair. We couldn't have done that. There are some other things we could have done smart, you know, maybe some tax deductions for buying PPE, you know, for normal people. That would have been great. But, I mean, the state's economy really looked like it could be in really, really bad shape. We're going to talk about the budget in a minute. But Kemp's hands, very, very tied. The thing that Kemp could have done, hasn't done, at least to my knowledge, but definitely didn't do in early in the crisis when it would have made a difference, was treat this situation like there was any other option. This speech is is reconfirming the things that annoyed me the most about Kemp at the beginning of the crisis, which is, even if we were on Earth 2, where Jeb Bush was president, and the federal government was actually going to like try to save people's lives rather than just like throw up its hands and say, I don't know, it's hard. Um, I don't know if Kemp would have done it. Like I don't know if Kemp would have accepted a bunch of federal money or shut down the way the government wanted him to do without complaining about it because of the fact that, like, he seems okay. Like, he thinks they have done a great job, considering the circumstances. And he's still not calling for, like, you know, it really helped to have some federal money to do X, Y, and Z. And that really, really frustrates me, because I'm sympathetic to the decision he made, considering the circumstances. But the fact that he hasn't been pushing the federal government to do more, to help the state in the areas that he actually is trying to do some good, like more testing, speaking up vaccine distribution, having, you know, good advice on how to do those things. He just, you know, he just seems like he's fine with the circumstances as it is. And to me, that's just very unacceptable. So that that's that's really where I, I come down on Kemp hard, the hardest is the fact that he, it, it, I mean, he's bragging. Like, that, that's what this comes off to me is like, I am did a great job. And that that is not the tone <laughs> I, I feel like is appropriate in this circumstance. Yeah. And I mean, a particular to his situation as a Republican governor, he would have had a unique voice with the White House, a Republican White House, to have gotten more aid for states and to have, you know, I would have hoped sort of would have forced a uh more coordinated, more organized response at the federal level. Like he could have played an important role there. We, we had two Republican senators during this entire crisis, Kelly Leffler and David Perdue. They could have played a more prominent role in, in sort of forcing that. And nobody was able to corral Trump and his administration into having a better response to this. And so I think that is, you know, more broadly the failure, there's plenty of failure to go around. Um, but I, you know, I I struggle with this a little bit because like you know, we've also seen this kind of failure in democratic states that have taken more serious approaches and I think everyone landed in this place of some of them had different messaging some messaging was stronger on masks and on social dis- social distancing and and caring for your neighbor some of that messaging was stronger than others but in a lot of states you just sort of ended up in the same place because even Democratic governors weren't willing to put their restaurant industries completely out of business. Um, and they had no other choice because federal aid didn't come. So I think, you know, in, in, in fairness to Kemp, you know, he's in the same boat with a lot of these other governors who many of which ended up in the same place. And I think 
you know, now I think I understand better the position that he holds. But again, none of it, on the whole, none of it was acceptable. Yeah, the last thing I'll say on this, and it's it's sort of a, a you know, a compliment sandwich, because it's going to start with something negative and then end on something positive. So as far as messaging goes, the, the one thing that I will remain forever frustrated with Kemp on for this is that Kemp never seemed, at least with his, like, public messaging, to prioritize being on top of the science of COVID-19. You know, the the infamous comment regarding asymptomatic spread when he finally shut down Georgia far later than any other state had, or most other states had shut down. And if you can't remember what it was, is that Kemp seemed to discover the fact that COVID-19 had asymptomatic spread about two weeks after everyone else did, despite being the governor of a state with a lot of people. Um, and the fact that he opened us up faster than almost any other governor. Um, the thing, you know, so like taking away the fact that like he hasn't prioritized the sci- science and he actively attacked people who did, like Keisha Lance Bottoms regarding mask mandates. The thing that I think Kemp actually does deserve credit for, unlike New York, New York, unlike California, he never BS'd us when it came to what his approach was going to be. <laughs> his approach was, I'm going to prioritize businesses and keeping the economy going, and if you're worried about the pandemic, you're on your own, worry about yourself, do what you can to protect yourself, that's on you, not on me. And I actually kind of think the lack of hypocrisy there is notable considering how almost every other governor was trying to pretend that, you know, your Thanksgiving gathering of two households was going to be significantly more dangerous than keeping restaurants open every single day for indoor dining or keeping bars open or barbershops or gyms. Like the fact that Kemp just like never BS'd us on that and basically just said, do whatever you want, but just, you know, deal with the consequences. Um, you know, I, I, I appreciate that. I wish he would, would have been more strong on the consequences part because he never communicated those the same way that other governors did, but he at least did not BS us by like pretending that he was doing something because the science made sense he always was doing something because the economics made sense that like barbershops and restaurants can't just stay closed for six months and continue to survive. And so on, on that, I think Kemp deserves some credit, but uh, as you said, Kyle, I agree the whole, the approach overall, it, it's sad that that's the place that, that we had to be in because the, the entity in the United States that could have helped us just abandoned the idea. Um, and I think Luke, that, approach extends to the the place that the state budget is in. Um, our Kemp made a notable announcement in this speech that there would not be new budget cuts this year. But keep in mind that there were $2.2 billion in budget cuts last year, some of which are getting filled in this time, but some of which are still TBD. Uh, but he, like the way he positioned his COVID response overall, uh, positioned himself on the budget in relation to blue states that took a more stringent economic approach. Working alongside Chairman England, Chairman Tillery, and our state budget director, Kelly Farr, we were able to make the difficult choices to balance our state budget when the session reconvened last June. Through diligent work, we passed a balanced budget that reflected our priorities, health care, public safety, education, and economic opportunity. 
And while the media and the politicians in California, New York, and others spent their 2020 throwing stones in glass houses, here in Georgia, I'm proud to report that unlike them, the Peach State will not be facing budget cuts this year. Other states are looking at further cuts to employees and essential services. For aid, they're now forced to turn to a dysfunctional and distracted Washington, D.C. But because we acted swiftly and early, the budgets my administration will propose in the coming days include no new cuts to state agencies and departments, no furloughs, no widespread layoffs to state employees, and I might add no new taxes to pay for it all. If, if there's no greater proof that I am a lifelong Georgia is the fact that Brian Kemp and I both always mention California and New York when we think of states not like Georgia. But I, I digress. Again on the facts, he is not wrong. Those states and many other states have been banging down the doors of Congress for months looking for more federal aid. Um, Georgia may not have to do that, although it is important to remember that we cut $2.2 billion last year. Um, it's also, I think, important to me to note that no furloughs, no layoffs, no big spending cuts. That's like the bare minimum. We are in a crisis. We continue to be in this crisis. And throughout this speech, you did not hear any sort of significant new spending that would support people facing the dire circumstances that we're in. And, it, you know, it is fitting with his approach. It's not a government first approach. Um, but again, it's sort of like this was touted up as, as this big win for him and, and this big success. This The thing on the budget felt a little bit like mission accomplished to me. But we are still not in a place we want to be in terms of helping people weather this crisis. Yeah, because it's so funny. I feel like I was a lot more negative towards Kemp in the first segment, and now uh, I'm going to be a little more positive towards him than you are. I mean, it, it, like considering the gravity of the global pandemic we are in, like I, I, I feel very happy, and I was very honestly surprised that that is what Kemp reported, <laughs> the fact that he was not going to call for more cuts. Uh, you know, probably the first reason I, I'm saying that is the fact that he called for cuts uh, before the pandemic. So the fact that he's not cutting anymore is, is good, I think. Um, and it is in, it is good because there are a lot of other States where that is not the case. Um, and so I think that is important just to, to note that he could have completely bungled this crisis. The general assembly could have completely bungled it to the point where, you know, we were facing deeper cuts now. And I think that would have been, really really bad so i'm very happy to hear that report that element of the report and actually look the way you described that actually reminded me that we were in a position where governor kemp was talking about significant budget cuts just to shrink the size of government early in his term and you could have seen an approach never letting a crisis go to waste of using this opportunity to shrink georgia's government just for his ideological concerns and preferences. And yeah, I guess I had forgotten about that, but it is notable that that's also not on the table this time. Yeah. And, and to me, I think that is like really important because there was that quote pretty early in the pandemic from Kemp about, you know, saying like, maybe this is an opportunity for us to, you know, learn to work with less. And so at least from first glance, first appearances, it seems like 
this is a reasonable floor for Brian Kemp and how low the, the Georgia you know budget can get. Um, so we'll, we'll see how that plays out. But the the two elements that are really interconnected that frustrate me are the ones that you hit on and the ones I've already hit on. The, the fact that he views like asking for federal aid during a once in a lifetime global pandemic as a sign of weakness. It's like, no, that is what the federal government is there for. <laughs> That's why we pay federal taxes. So that like when something this big happens, like a war or a pandemic, like that's why why we pay taxes to help get help from the federal government in situations like this. So like it's great that we don't need it in the sense that like our budget's not on fire without it. Like I I think he actually the assembly deserves credit. He deserves credit for that. But the thing that like I think he just like isn't making the connection that you and I make is that like it's fine to say these are the things we would do if the if the federal government had the capacity to help us because Georgia's not running at a hundred percent right now. You know the fact that like we're not firing people or furloughing people is great, but like there's lots of positions that before the pandemic the state was trying to fill and they weren't paying those people enough money to actually fill those positions. So it's not like we've returned to the healthy pre-pandemic baseline. We're still facing significant cuts. And so that's the thing. The other element that I'm so frustrated about is that like Kemp is not showing us a vision for the future. I mean, he he's, we're dog paddling, right? Like very effectively, our heads are above water, and we're doing all right, which is great because, again, like global crisis. So the fact that we're not drowning, I'm actually very happy about. But it's just the lack of vision of like what we could be doing beyond surviving, <laughs> I think, is really frustrating. And where a lot of my frustration at this speech comes from, because uh, poor Kemp, <laughs> every day on this show, we just compare him to Governor Deal because he's the most recent governor we've had. But it's just like, you know, Deal, like every state of the state he had, like he had things he wanted to do, <laughs> new money he wanted to spend, you know, ways the state could improve. And like, again, there's some small things in here and they're good. They're good small things, but there's no like big reason why if I was a state legislator, I'd be like, oh man, we're going to accomplish this big thing we can all be proud of. It's just like we're surviving, <laughs> you know, and we're supposed to like have a party about surviving is what it feels like. Yeah. I mean, long gone are the days of innovations like the Hope Scholarship. Like we're not, we're never talking about anything on that level anymore. Also, I think most frustrating with, with sort of this approach to the budget and this uh, spiking the football on the budget is that there are people who are falling through the cracks of this recovery that could be helped by state dollars. You, I will grant to Kemp and to governors across the country that, that no state's budget is adequate to throw a life raft to the state's entire economy or even the state's entire business community made up of close contact businesses that were most affected by this pandemic. But there are smaller groups of people that need help that are falling through the cracks. The The Labor Department has been under scrutiny lately, given how they've treated unemployment insurance claims. And the Labor Commissioner, Mark Butler, is telling people that there is no longer a backlog of claims for people who are deemed eligible for unemployment insurance. But there's 40 to 50,000 people sitting in appeal 
because their claims were initially denied based on not being eligible under really strict unemployment insurance rules. 40 to 50,000 people is not a huge amount of people who are looking for just a little bit of money to help them subsist every month. And if our budget is in such great shape because we protected the economy, where is some help for those kinds of workers? Where is a one-time grant or extra funds to help them get by? Like they are falling through the cracks. Businesses that could not access the federal PPP loans, businesses that didn't have as good of connections to the banks that they were with or as good of connections to capital in their industries as as the biggest players that they compete against, where is support for them? Like, just because we are in a pretty good place with the economy and a pretty good place with the budget doesn't mean that people haven't fallen through the cracks. And I just don't see much effort or focus on helping them. Yeah, and, and that will continue to be my frustration with, with camp on the budget, on COVID-19, on basically every all of his topics. It's just like there, there's just nothing for anyone who Georgia is not working for already. If Georgia works for you, if you're living a good life, you know, if you can work from home, if you have gone to school, it's working really great for you. But if it's not, if Georgia's not working for you, Brian Kemp, at least so far in his term as governor, has not offered you really much of anything. Let's shift gears here and talk a little bit about a clip that I thought was really notable from the end of his speech. Um, We've been living through several crises in the last year or so. Um, One of those crises that has become much more visible and and more people have become engaged in is a a crisis of of racial justice in this state and in this country. And when we watch the Senate runoff races, particularly the campaign of Kelly Leffler, she was somebody who, like Donald Trump, inflamed racial divisions as a way to divide and conquer the electorate and attempt to keep her seat in the United States Senate. And you and I, Luke, have had this sort of open question about how that approach to campaigning, how that approach to stoking the base of President Trump and and the base Kelly Loeffler was after, how that would trickle out into Georgia politics going forward, and whether or not that trend was a really alarming one um, that we should be worried about. Let's listen to Governor Kemp take what I think is a significantly different approach from what you saw on the Senate runoff campaign trail. On May 5th, 2020, a viral video shocked the world. The horrific killing of Ahmaud Arbery shook a Georgia community to its very core. We all felt anger, disbelief, and a deep sorrow, but none more than Ahmaud's family and loved ones. Ahmaud was a victim of a vigilante style of violence that has no place in our state. The deranged behavior that led to this tragedy was excused away because of a law that is ripe for abuse and enables sinister evil motives. That's why my administration plans to introduce significant reforms to our state citizens arrest statute and working with legislative leaders and members of both parties. I believe that we can take another step toward a better, safer, and more just future for our state. We can again send a clear message. Georgia is a state that protects all of its people and fights for injustice wherever it is found. Luke, given what we saw from Kelly Leffler, I was actually very uh, heartened by 
a strong denunciation of the murder of Ahmad Arbery from Governor Kemp in the state of the state. It's a really low bar, isn't it? It's a really low bar, <laughs> I mean, I, but yeah. I, I, but but like that's not Kemp's fault. Kemp did not single-handedly create the state of racial relations in the United States or in the Republican Party. So I agree with you, and I am very very happy to see that he took that approach and was so like very strong. His condemnation of that act did not leave any daylight for someone who thought that was acceptable. He was very clear on that. The one thing, and I'm probably I'm hoping that I'm just looking way too much into one word is the fact that he used reform uh, the citizen's arrest statute rather than repeal. Um, because the fact that one of the murderers of Ahmad Arbery was a former police officer, like if you're reforming the citizen arrest statute, like I feel like that's the kind of people who you would usually like point that towards. Hopefully that's just like me looking into it too much and they're basically getting rid of it with whatever, uh, you know, quote, unquote, quote, unquote, reform they are pursuing. Uh, but I, yeah, I'm happy that Kemp has at least laid down a rhetorical marker that this is very bad. Don't do it. And we're going to change this law. And the reason why you and I are praising him for this, that I think we do actually need to just explicitly mention is that, I really thought this was one of those things that they were going to do the hate crimes bill that they had already planned on doing that one of the houses had already passed and pat them on the back, spike the, spike the football and be like, we did it. We fixed race relations in Georgia. I probably said that on the episode that we talked about this. It sounds uh, familiar. You know, when they passed the law that, you know, we were worried that this is where that conversation was going to end. And so just the fact that Brian Kemp as governor has made it very clear that this conversation is not over. We have more work to do. And this is something I care about. Like, it's great. It's honestly great. And I, I you know, just the fact that he's going to keep that conversation alive, I think is really good. I hope that whatever reform he is pushing is good. And I will be, you know, I hope that I will be equally happy about what he wants to do. But the fact that he's just like not letting that conversation die, he deserves credit for that. And I'm, I'm not going to like, you know, dance around that he does well and i think happy about it (laughs) and i think in some ways the symbolism is even more important that like he didn't equivocate about black lives matter he didn't sit there and 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 connect this to riots you know last week we saw an insurrection on on the u.s capitol that largely was aimed at upholding a, a white power structure under the presidency of donald trump And it's very clear that there are a lot of voters who vote for Republicans who believe that that is a noble and important goal, political goal within the Republican Party. And that leaves an option open for a lot of Republican officials to look for ways to nod and wink to that group, you know, and and sort of send the message that implicitly you agree, or at least you don't vehemently disagree and it emboldens that that movement and that group of people whom we saw invade the U.S. Capitol last week. And it is comforting to me. That is, that is not the kind of denunciation that Kelly Leffler would have given on the campaign trail. And as much as she shit-talked Black Lives Matter, you know, she, she never approached anything of that kind of clarity and condemnation that Governor Kemp did. And it's just heartening to me that Governor Kemp feels that this is an important stand to take, even if it is one in opposition to 
a significant portion of the Republican base. I think that that's, that's a hopeful sign. We have wondered if how much Republican officials who want to avoid ever losing a primary to a Trumpy Republican, how much they would get sucked into appealing to that group of voters. And it's just, I, it's good that, that Kemp made a very clear decision not to in that moment. And so I'm grateful for that. Yeah, totally agree. And I, I hope that others will follow his lead and that the legislature will successfully move on this issue, which, I mean, I, I there was a lot of energy on the Democratic side. If Kemp is pushing it, I imagine something will get done and hopefully it will be substantive. Yeah, I mean, it, it, to me, it would be hard to leave any citizen's arrest statute in place that would allow anything remotely similar to what happened to Ahmad Arbery to happen and be legal. Otherwise, that condemnation from Kemp would would prove to be empty. And it just it didn't sound empty the way that he said it. And so, you know, we'll see what the difference is between repeal and reform. But if anything remotely resembling the statute that's there now is there after they're done with this effort, then, you know, that's not the message that I got from his his speech on that point. Look, let's talk a little bit about what was missing from this speech in a lot of ways, I felt like, you know, you had these, you had this big defense from governor Kemp of his COVID-19 response and the place that it puts the state's economy in the budget. You had this strong condemnation of the murder of Ahmed Arbery. And then you had a basket of little things that I think were largely positive aimed at growing the state's rural tourism economy, helping rural Georgia invest in rural broadband um, some additional money for schools, uh, particularly for teachers and staff who've had to work so hard this year. Um, some additional money, some what I what I believe appear to be some grants to college students who are close to finishing their college degrees and who may drop out of college because of financial troubles amidst this pandemic. But there, it sounds like they're going to get a little bit of extra help. A lot of a lot of little good things in here. Um, Governor Kemp also avoided what are likely to be, I think, at least two of the most partisan and divisive battles in the legislature this session, the fight over voting policies that we've talked about, and I think a coming push from the uh, conservative wing of his party trying to push through uh, school vouchers that would divert money from public schools and, in effect, punish public schools who have had to go virtual during the pandemic Governor Kemp didn't mention either of these, but we're likely to see fights over these things in the legislature during this session. Were Kyle, were you surprised that he had mentioned these things? No, because I think my prediction for where Governor Kemp would go in this session is sort of a return to his agenda. And I think he does want to champion the things that he mentioned in this speech. And I, you know, you can sort of begin to see his campaign message coming to fruition out of this speech of steady, stable leadership that protected lives and livelihoods and invested in, in rural Georgia and jobs in our economy. Um, I think he will be a player in the, particularly on the voting restrictions that are likely to be considered. Um, he already signaled that he supports a voter ID requirement for absentee ballots but I don't think that he wants to be a champion of those issues. And I think he recognizes that they are divisive ones that are not helpful to him politically. The question, though, 
is there's a political message, a political image that he wants to project, and then there is what influence he will wield behind the scenes. And on both the issue of voting restrictions and on school vouchers, what he does behind the scenes is going to be really meaningful. Um, and it could end up pushing bad policies that we'll be you know, talking about once they actually come to light later in session. Yeah, I'm glad I asked you that question because now I have almost nothing to say. It's rare that I feel that way. <laughs> so, yeah, I feel I feel like that's exactly right. Um, it, it, yeah, I'm not super surprised on the school choice stuff. I'm a little surprised, but like Kemp's never cared about that stuff, or at least from what I've seen publicly, he's never cared about the school choice stuff as much as say Governor Deal <laughs> did. So, you know, uh, that I, I I think it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, it is interesting that he didn't lay that marker down about the ballot reform stuff just because it is going to be such a contentious thing, but maybe he's he's keeping his options open um, by just saying he accepts it but isn't pushing for it. Because as we've alluded to, <laughs> uh, Governor Kemp will have to be up for a re-election uh, pretty soon in uh, two years because it never stops. Uh, the elections never stop here in Georgia. Um, and he definitely will face... Um, a lot of criticism for his uh, past behavior on voter suppression issues. And I imagine, as you rightfully said, if he was perceived as a, a champion on those issues, you know, on the, the new attempt to suppress voters in Georgia, uh, he, he would get a lot of flack for that, that I imagine he doesn't want. Uh, if Kemp was into 3D chess, he would consider vegoing whatever voter suppression bill comes to his desk in 21 or 22. But I, I don't think we've found that. Uh, version of Kemp yet I know I think that's pretty brilliant to be honest because that's why I make the big bucks Kyle (laughs) (laughs) because you know a lot of this plays into uh how he was viewed as secretary of state and he did he was a champion of uh policies and procedures that made it more difficult to vote and Democrats in this state largely have a movement organized around the attempts to suppress people's right to vote there's been a lot of blowback to that, and now I think he wants no piece of it. Um, let's talk a little bit about the Democratic response here. So uh, State Senator Gloria Butler gave the response for the Democrats. She is the new minority leader of Democrats in the state Senate. And my impression of this response was that it was fairly typical of recent responses from Democrats, kind of no matter who's given them. They are not overly combative. They often cite places where Democrats agree with Republicans, whether it was Governor Kemp or Governor Deal. And then they lay out a laundry list of policies where Democrats disagree and they believe that they hold a better path forward for the state that that spreads prosperity to, to more of its people. But these, in my view, tend to be relatively sleepy affairs. Uh, they are often given, I believe, in the Senate press room, uh, no audience, no sort of call and response, not a lot of energy to it. And Luke, I come away from this wondering if that was a missed opportunity. Given the ascendance of Democrats electorally, I felt like there was an opportunity here to give a strong contrast and sort of a reset between what separates the rising Democratic electorate and the rising group of Democratic politicians we've seen to really define what separates them from Republican governance that we've had in this state for the last 20 years. 
do you think that this would have been a good opportunity to to give that contrast? And I'm kind of left with the idea that like maybe they should have done something different and let Stacey Abrams give this speech. Well, to hit the Stacey Abrams point very quickly, um, that's what next year is for, Kyle. <laughs> you can't give it to her two years in a row. That'd be a little tacky because um, we, we do have a small bench in Georgia, but it is a, a building bench. And so I think it is important to, you know, let, let some folks try uh, to, to do it um, other than just giving it to Stacy every year. Uh, Cause I think that'd be a little rough. Um, that being said, I agree with your larger point, which is that like, this was a lost opportunity. I think ever, I mean, it's, it's our annual tradition, I think to complain about the state of the state response, uh, you, you know, COVID-19, uh, out of the way, you have been like, this should have been in a parking lot and a big rally with a stage and a crowd. Actually, I should sure. just clip like three minutes of our show from last year and 2018 and 2017. We, I yeah. probably have said the same thing for the last three years. <laughs> yeah, you probably have. And I've agreed with you and I agree with you here. And it's, it's frustrating because, you know, I want to be fair. I'm always very critical, but I do try to be fair. I really do. And like... The thesis of my argument against Brian Kemp over this past hour, where all of you have been subjected to my thoughts, um, is that like he lacks vision and lacks imagination and isn't presenting us with big ideas. And like the Democrats in the legislature have not done it either, right? Like it's it's not like Gloria Butler or any of the people who have done it in years past, you know, all the way to the first one I remember uh, in 2014 with Jason Carter, like. They they just like don't offer this big contrary vision of like, oh, this is what Democrats would do if we controlled the state. And I'm not gonna say that like once someone actually does that, Democrats will magically take over the legislature, but I, I definitely think it would help because one big problem I think we have that both the Biden election, but especially the two Democratic senators we now have. The big difference is they always made the stakes really clear. Like, Biden made the stakes really clear. Warnock and Ossoff made the stakes really clear. And people understood what the difference would be if you had, you know, a Republican president or a Democratic president or Republican senators or Democratic senators. And for whatever reason, on the state level, we have not gotten as sharp with our criticisms or as clear of our vision for what we would want to do if we got power. And we really, really need to work on that. Because the thing that I'm really afraid of, especially coming into the elections we have two years away from now, is that if we don't fix that problem, we're not going to be able to win those races. Because people will just be like, I don't love how things are going, but I really don't know what you guys want to do. So why would I support you over the thing I know is pretty much working? And, you know, that that's the thing I'm, I'm afraid of. And I, I hope that in you know the coming months we get better at communicating and better at pushing that. And, you know, it's hard. It's hard to do it. <laughs> that's why no one's done it in <laughs> the whole time we've had this show going. So one, one year someone will do it and we'll, we'll play all our negative clips and say, you know, what this speech was it was none of those things. Uh, but until then, we'll, we'll just uh, be on repeat once a year on this issue. Well, and I think that, I mean, to me, that explains a little bit why you saw this state flip at the federal level in three different races, and you saw largely status quo in the elections for the legislature. And not to mention the fact that we had 
three elections in that runoff. Uh, one was for, you know, the, I mean, we have the two Senate seats, and then we had one for public service commissioner, and the Democrat, Daniel Blackman, did not win. And I think part of the reason he didn't win was he didn't have enough money to be on TV constantly like the other races. But also, like, to the average voter, and I know a lot of average voters, uh, you know, like, they just, like, didn't know who he was or what the Public Service Commission does or why it matters if the guy, you know, there has an R or a D by their name. Like, that's that's a problem that Democrats need to really take seriously. And I don't think it'll be as big of a problem for the Kent v. Abrams rematch. Like, I think she probably will have picked up on these things and learned these things. And she didn't do a half-bad job last time, to be honest. But, I mean, pretty much every other statewide elected have has not picked up on this yet, on the Democratic flag. They just have not gotten, they haven't learned the lessons that were needed. And, you know, to be fair to those folks, like, no one had done it <laughs> in a really long time. So, you know, now that we have the example of Biden we're knocking us off though like those lessons need to be learned and committed to scripture uh so that they don't make the same mistakes and they try to look at what those folks did well and repeat it well and it's also that i mean the table has been set by all of the organizing work that's been done like people are engaged now and people are paying attention they're being communicated to by campaigns the business of governing in this state is much more accessible to people who have not been reached out to in prior years and have been shut out by the comp by how complex it was to register to vote to to get your vote cast a lot of that work has been done and i think the final step to landing the plane is to just make really clear for voters how democratic governance would be different and i just think that because i i have no qualms with any of the policies that Senator Butler listed in her speech. And many of them make up an agenda that would shift the focus of this state, the priority of its policy toward its people and away from only its businesses, only its economy. All of that stuff is there, but to wrap it up in a nice bow and to let people know that these are the stakes for 2022. And that's why I think it was important to start now because we just came out of an election where the stakes were very clear. And I think this the stakes were very clear at the federal level. It was very important for Democrats to get those victories. Those same stakes exist at the state level. And voting for Warnock and voting for Ossoff, that's not the only way to affect change in your state. Flipping this legislature, putting a Democrat in the governor's office, that is all important. That is all necessary to this project, too. So let's wrap up here with just a, a couple of other things to keep an eye on during session. Um, many of these issues we are going to return to individually, let you guys know what's happening at the Capitol when new legislation gets introduced, when these fights over policy really do break out. But a couple of other dynamics to keep in mind here, um, one of which is it's really up in the air how session is going to go. Um this, I couldn't imagine why. <laughs> we are we are still in the middle of this pandemic. The w- the way that it, it has upended all of our lives, it's also possible that it upends the legislative session again. Remember, they were out for a couple months and had to come back in the middle of the summer to wrap up things last year. And it's possible that they may have to do that again. Uh, the main reason being that 
not everybody at the state legislature has gotten vaccinated yet. And we are beginning to see uh, COVID cases emerge among lawmakers and staff. There are at least nine people in the Senate who have tested positive among lawmakers and staff, and at least three or four members of the House have also tested positive for COVID-19. And there was a little bit of frustration this week from Speaker Ralston in getting members of the legislature to take care of themselves and to take care of each other. Let's listen to uh, House Speaker David Ralston. I don't know if y'all were aware, but we're in the middle of a pandemic. 74 members of this body did not get tested that were present in the building. And that's a bipartisan count, by the way. So, um, you know, we're, we're doing everything we possibly can to keep you safe. But it takes a little bit of initiative on your part and following the rules, because if you don't want to keep yourself safe, I'd like for you to keep your neighbor safe and me safe and those around you safe. Protect David Ralston. <laughs> yes. Um, so that was in reference to the they're getting tested, I believe it's twice a week on, on Tuesdays and on Thursdays. That was a reference to the number of lawmakers that skipped tests on Tuesdays. Hopefully that number was higher on Thursday. Um, but regardless, Luke, that highlights the possibility that the legislature is not immune to COVID and, and things could get thrown off track really quickly if uh, they have to go out of session to, to keep lawmakers safe. Yeah, and I really hope we don't. And kudos to David Ralston for you know pushing back so hard on folks not following the rules and, and getting tested because it's it's very important that they do that because you know Georgia does <laughs> has some Georgia has some things it needs to do, <laughs> so uh, we really need our state government to uh, you know be functioning and, and working and everyone to stay uh, healthy and safe. Uh, so I hope that they you know take take this seriously that they have a little mini outbreak right now in the state senate and you know do do what they need to do to avoid it it helps a lot that they aren't meeting this week uh in in legislative session i do know they have budget meetings and hearings and and such but hopefully they can uh, do that in a safe and distanced way and i believe lawmakers are encouraged to attend those meetings virtually um i know we'll be watching them virtually um and and hopefully most of the the legislature will too one other development sort of in our recurring series of how 2020 politics is going to spill over into 2021 for Republicans, uh, the some of the members of the state Senate Sedition Caucus that wrote a letter to Vice President Pence asking him to overturn the results of the election, they have lost chairmanships in the state Senate. We actually have some consequences for state senators Brandon Beach, Matt Brass, and Burt Jones. Uh, all three lost chairmanships. Not every state senator who signed on to that letter lost uh, their chairmanship. So uh, discipline there was not uh, sent out equally. Um, but I think those are probably three of the most prominent who have pushed the election denialism uh, out of the Republican caucus in the state Senate. And leadership, including presumably Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, uh, was not happy about it. Yeah, I was very happy to see that they are at least taking some steps to show that they don't want the party to be about this, which, you know, it's going to be a, a long conversation for us. Um, 
I think, unfortunately, in Georgia because we're really the epicenter of what's going on in the Republican Party, I think, because, you know, we have Brad Raffensperger, a nationally recognized figure who has stood up to Trump and his false claims about the election, but we also have Marjorie Taylor Greene, one of the loudest provocateurs and supporters of the president and the big lie that he won the election. So, you know, the, how these different factions come out, you know, who wins in the Republican Party is a nationwide conversation, but I think Georgia is going to be a big battleground testing site for both both of these factions going forward. And I think it's going to be interesting to see if the pressure can be kept up against Republicans who are promoting this big lie, um, because most of them know better. I mean, you know, state legislatures and Congress now are, are strange animals, so some of them maybe maybe don't, but they should know better, and they have access to the information that would help them know better. And I, I truly think, especially based off of the Senate races, how they turned out, if the Republicans don't get this cancer out of them, they are going to face more and more losses on the state level. And so I'm happy that they are at least taking this initial step towards getting rid of this faction or reducing its power significantly and making it clear that they they aren't going to stand by uh, entirely and just you know let let folks propagate these lies that are uh, you know putting legislators and their staffs and anyone at the Capitol's lives at risk because there have been plenty of death threats and very concerning emails sent. Uh, to the legislators about this these topics. And so I'm, I'm happy they're doing something, and I hope they do more. All right. Well, with that, I think we are going to wrap it up for the week. Um, again, we will be back uh, to follow more of these specific issues individually as they pop. You'll also hear interviews from experts who are following these issues, and, and we'll try to hear from um, some lawmakers at the Capitol during session about the things that they care about um, and the things that they're working on. And not to mention, check your feeds for my interview with uh, Charlie Bailey. He's a Democratic candidate for attorney general. Listeners, I'm sorry, but the campaign season never ends. We are ready for 2022. And and Charlie Bailey is the first announced Democrat that I'm aware of. And so we went ahead and talked to him about launching his campaign for attorney general. Start your countdown clocks, folks. <laughs> it's election season in Georgia. Yeah, Luke, you got to put that countdown clock back above your desk. Oh, it's always there, man. It's always there. It is not, though. As we sit here on Monday evening, January 18th, it is not running, is it? It is uh, running towards the inauguration of Joe Biden at the moment. Okay. Well, so that is yeah. that is a, a thing to look forward to. That's right. Luke, thank you, as always, for, for joining the podcast. Uh, uh, thank you, and to uh, President-elect Joe Biden, who will be president the next time we record. <laughs> He may be present by the time you're hearing this, depending on how quickly I edit. Alrighty, <laughs> True. Alrighty, y'all. We're going to leave it there. We'll talk to you again soon. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning into Peach Pod. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, take care, y'all.